So Father, we praise you this morning for the living hope that we have been given in your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you that we do not come to this place to commemorate a fallen saint, but to celebrate and proclaim a risen Savior. One who has overcome sin and death and hell and the grave. One who stands in victory over the darkness of this world and one who shares that victory with us through faith in his name. So Father, would the hope of the powerful gospel message fall fresh on our hearts once again today, that through these words, Lord, you would mold our hearts and our minds and ultimately make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask all of these things in his name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead. Uh, and have your seats. Um, and uh, good morning. Welcome. If you're here today as our guest for the first time, my name is Taylor Burgess. serve here at Cross's Lead Pastor. Glad to have those of you joining us online as well. Let us know that you're here. Uh, glad to be connecting with you this morning. But if you are here today uh, for the first time as our guest, we, for the last few weeks as a church family, have been walking verse by verse through the book of Philippians. So if you're not there already, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. Um, 2020 has been full of lots of new experiences for, for many of us, things that we never, uh, maybe in a million years, imagine ourselves doing. And uh, at the very top of that list for me of things that I definitely never imagined myself doing, uh, one of them occurred back in the month of April when we celebrated Easter at the Highway 21 drive-in. So who joined us for Easter at the drive-in earlier this year? Such an incredible morning together, and um, it was a beautiful way just to be able to still, in some capacity, come together and celebrate that day, our risen Savior. But um, everything leading up to that particular day where we gathered together at the drive-in was a little bit of a whirlwind. So it was just a few weeks before Easter, and our staff had been having conversation of uh, what could we do on Easter Sunday this year to still uh, have some sort of unique experience to, to commemorate. Um, Easter, and so it was suggested the drive-in, and so uh, long story short, we called, and the owner got back to us right away, and she was like, we'd love for you guys to be able to come out, but uh, something you should probably know uh, is that I made that call and said, yes, we want to do it, before I'd had a single conversation with our staff uh, or our elder team, and um, so it was one of those deals where I kind of got off the phone, called them, and said, hey guys, surprise, you know, guess what, Easter's at the drive-in this year, and uh, the next few weeks, it was just this all-out blitz where we were uh, doing everything we could. There's a lot of preparation that went into this day, a lot of precautions that we were um, having to, to take. And so um, the weeks leading up to it, there were a few uh, news outlets that picked it up as well. And so I found as I was talking about Easter at the drive-in, um, just full transparency, I was actually making up the plan for what we were doing as I was telling them what we were going to be doing. And so it was just, it was that last minute that we were just pulling everything uh, together. And so uh, everything happened so quickly that I really never had the opportunity to pause and just consider how ridiculous all of it was. And so it was 6.30, Easter Sunday morning, I'm driving up on the property, and the sun's coming, it was a beautiful morning, uh, but there was potentially some rain that day, so those of you that were there, you remember Grayson had the worship team in the concession stand. Um, they were set up in there, and of course we all, we're going to pull up, in, we're, we're going to park, we're going to stay in our cars, we're going to tune in our radios. We had a, a flatbed trailer from an 18-wheeler that we use as the stage that I was standing up on to, to preach the message that morning. And, and, and so when we finally got to the property that morning, I, it finally all dawned on me just how ridiculous it was, and I looked at our staff and, and, and just said, guys, what in the world are we doing? What on earth are we doing here? How did we get to this point? And so it's Easter Sunday. We, we uh, want to be heavily evangelistic on this day. We see this as a great opportunity to share the gospel publicly, and so we wanted to give people the opportunity to respond to the gospel, but didn't really have an aisle that people could walk 
right, because everybody's stuck on their cars, but we also didn't think it was feasible for them to drive down the aisle either. That could be complicated. And so uh, we had designed this, this app, you know, or the, this online website people could go to and have a response card. And we, the way we asked people uh, to indicate if they professed faith in Jesus Christ was to flash headlights uh, across the whole property. And so um, it got to the end of both of our worship uh, times that, together that day. And, and praise God at both services, we got to the end, uh, and there were multiple sets of headlights that flashed. And I was reminded, church, in that specific particular moment, that there is absolutely nothing that can stop the power of the gospel. There's absolutely nothing that can hinder the advance and the power of the gospel. The ongoing narrative of church history has not just been a story of how the gospel has advanced in spite of opposition. It's also been a story of how the church has rejoiced in the face of persecution. And so we've titled this message series Invincible Joy because that's really what we see on display through the testimony and life of the Apostle Paul as he writes the book of Philippians. So uh, just by way of reminder, where is Paul writing this letter from? Who remembers? He's writing this from prison. Very good. And so um, he, in spite of being in prison and in spite of being hindered from uh, fully participating in the gospel ministry in the ways he might wish, the gospel message continues to advance. And so if we're going to know invincible joy, the foundation of that invincible joy has to be an unstoppable message. And so that's really the central truth we're going to see in this text this morning is that we can know invincible joy in Christ, and it's through the unstoppable power of the gospel. Our, our joy can be invincible because our message is unstoppable, and that is what's going to sustain us through the season. So uh, let's read again from Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, so again, he's talking about his imprisonment here, the fact that he's in prison. He says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the message of the gospel is unstoppable. And we see first from this passage this morning that the gospel cannot be hindered by difficult problems. So again, quick refresher from where we've been the last few weeks. Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison. And a lot has happened to the Apostle Paul uh, since the time he left Jerusalem up to this point in time when he's in prison. So uh, throughout Paul's ministry, a riot was stirred up because of what he was doing. He was in prison for two years in Caesarea. He appeals his case to Caesar, and that's how he gets to prison in Rome. And so he's been placed under house arrest, which means he's got restricted movement, limited freedom. And there's been multiple threats on his life. And throughout his ministry, Paul has faced every conceivable form of danger and persecution that you can imagine. So uh, in light of all of that, I don't think anybody would have blamed Paul if he had taken some time at the beginning of this letter just to say, hey, would you guys mind praying for me? I've kind of had a rough go. But there's not a single hint of defeat in Paul's voice in spite of everything that he's faced. Listen to what he says in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, if we're thinking in military terms this morning, what would be the opposite of advance? Retreat. But not only is Paul not waving the white flag of surrender, Paul is sounding the trumpet to advance. And I think what most of us would see as an obstacle to the gospel, Paul actually sees it as an opportunity to advance the gospel. 
He looks at his imprisonment, and Paul doesn't see himself as being captive. He sees himself as having a captive audience because he's got these prison guards, and guess what? They've got to show up to work where he is every single day too, and what does Paul say? Might as well share the gospel with them. And it's all the way to this effect. It says that through his imprisonment, the entire imperial guard is hearing the message of the gospel. Paul knows that his time is limited. He knows that his life is not guaranteed. And so he's not going to play this game of, hey, I'll just sit and wait until things get better. He redeems this obstacle as an opportunity to advance the message of the gospel. This word advance that Paul uses here, it's the same word that he uses uh, in verse 25, which we'll see next week, to talk about the progress of the church, of the faith of the church in Philippi. And and this is really a a common theme all throughout the book of Philippians. We see uh, this theme of forgetting the past and pressing on in gospel advance. So if you uh, turn in your Bibles uh, just over a page or two probably to Philippians chapter 3, and uh, this is what Paul says in verses 12 through 14. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. Pay attention to the language that Paul's going to use here, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. There it is again. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This language, advance, progress, forget what lies behind, strain forward, press on. These are all common themes that we see throughout the book of Philippians. But there's a couple of things that we experience personally that could serve as obstructions to gospel advancement if we allow them to. One of the obstructions to gospel advancement in our lives might be regret of our past. We we might just look at our past, we might look at our history, we might look at our story, and what happens is we convince ourselves that we've got just a little bit too much sin hidden in the closet for us to be able to be useful and effective for the advance of the kingdom. And so we may even desire to be involved in serving the church and, and desire to be involved in advancing ministry, but we live in the guilt and the shame and the regret of our past and we disqualify ourselves because of the things that we've done. Or it could be if you don't feel, feel that you really have a, a lot of egregious, heinous sins in your background that maybe you just feel like you've wasted some years. You've not been as, as committed to your faith as you should be, not been as committed to the word, not been as committed to prayer, and you, you feel like you're not as far along in your spiritual journey as you should be, as you might be if you had focused a little bit more during these times. But the picture that we see here of Paul, church, is that there is absolutely no past that isn't redeemable. Go back and let's remember Paul's story. That let's remember that before he came to faith in Christ, Paul was responsible for killing Christians. Which means if God can use Paul, he can use any one of us. There's absolutely nothing that's in our past that will disqualify us from being useful in advancing the gospel. Another potential obstruction to gospel advancement might be the reality of our present. Um, how many of us, I'm just curious, show of hands, are participating in community groups right now? Fantastic. And so right now, uh, we're working through a resource by Robbie Gallaty called Growing Up. And if you've already done the reading for this week, maybe if your group meets tonight, you should do that if you haven't already. Um, but if you've done the reading for this week, he talks about uh, quoting a book called Wiki Church by Steve Morell, three myths that hinder disciple making today, talking about present uh, challenges. One myth is the mentor myth. 
And so what we could do is we convince ourselves that only vocational ministers are qualified uh, to do the work of ministry. Then there is also the ministry myth. This touches a little bit on our past. that It might cause people to think that because of previous sins or because you have a reserved personality, because you, you have a perceived lack of talent, or if you've been a little bit lazy in your approach to Scripture and to prayer and to memorizing Scripture, we convince ourselves we're not ready for ministry. could be the maturity myth. What we convince ourselves, hey, before I can engage in this, maybe, man, maybe I need to go to seminary, I need to complete this study, I need to go receive some sort of diploma, and then I'll be ready. Or just in 2020, we just look at the challenges we face this year and be like, listen, it's just a lot easier to take a step back and sit on the sidelines and wait for things to get back to normal. But, but here's what we've got to understand from the biblical perspective, particularly as it pertains to the Apostle Paul. For Paul, prison was normal. That was his norm. Like facing opposition, walking through struggle, walking through difficulty, that was the only normal that the first century followers of Christ experienced. And look what happens in spite of this, what Paul says here in verse 13. He says, what has happened to me has really served to the advance of the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So while there are obstructions or obstacles to gospel advancement, we, I think, can redeem this and see them instead as opportunities for gospel advancement. So opportunities for gospel advancement, we see here from verse 13 that our circumstances are an opportunity to engage the lost. Again, Paul did not see himself as a captive. He saw himself as having a captive audience. And uh, most scholars believe that the Imperial Guard was an elite military unit. So, I mean, think like uh, Navy SEALs, think, you know, Army Rangers, all, all of those crazy like Delta Force, Chuck Norris type movies and stuff. Like, like, think elite military unit, and that's what most believe to be was the makeup of the Imperial Guard. And these guys still have to show up to work every single day. And so Paul uses this opportunity to share the gospel with them, to share the good news of who Jesus is. And now the gospel has been proclaimed out of this one single prison to the whole imperial guard, which is made up of over 9,000 men. All because Paul saw this not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity to engage and advance the gospel. Then in verse 14, he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So our circumstances are an opportunity to engage the lost, and our circumstances are also an opportunity to embolden the church. It was through his imprisonment, it was through his struggle, it was through his suffering that others were emboldened to proclaim the message of Jesus without fear. Back in uh, the 1950s, a um, famous uh, Christian missionary named Jim Elliott, um, many of you have probably heard before, he lost his life uh, advancing the gospel among the, the Aka in Ecuador, and it's been said that after Elliot lost his life uh, for the sake of the gospel, that dozens of college students from Wheaton College began to emerge. They were emboldened by his example and his sacrifice, and they were eager to take the gospel to the nations and to difficult places. Because generally speaking, we're not really inspired by people who don't have to go through a lot of struggle to get to some sort of place of glory. Like, we're not terribly inspired by the story of the guy that's like, he was born a multimillionaire and then he died a multi-billionaire. Like, we don't hear that story and like, hey, yeah, he was born with everything and basically never worked a day in his life and everything was handed to him. Uh, and he sat on his money and it gained interest and he died with even more money. We don't hear that story like, oh gosh, yeah. I mean, maybe we do, but not for the right reason, Right? We wish it was our story, but we're not really going to be inspired that it's somebody else's story. What, what really does inspire us is the person who sacrificed it all. 
The person who risked it all, the person who was born without anything, the person who was willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice. And that's what happens when we persevere through trouble and when we persevere with joy. And this is what marked Jim Elliott's life. If you look at a journal entry, not long before he lost his life in Gospel Advance, he had, he had etched this in the pages of his journal that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He was willing to lay down everything for the advance of the gospel. And these are the types of story that inspire us. And that sort of testimony is what emboldens the church. But I think far too many of us sit back oftentimes, and maybe even this year in 2020, we're not willing to take that type of sacrifice. And really right now we're just playing it safe and waiting for things to get back to normal. But here's the problem with normal. Normal doesn't typically require boldness. Normal doesn't typically require sacrifice. Normal doesn't require spirit-empowered living. And in our church culture today, unfortunately, normal tends to be synonymous with comfortable. Let's be honest. I think that's what most of us mean when we talk about things getting back to normal, is getting back to the place of things being comfortable. You know, I think one of my great regrets over the last several months are periods of time where I have just sat waiting for things to get back to normal. But let's just take an honest evaluation across the church landscape in our culture today. And let's ask ourselves, let's just be honest, have we ever considered that maybe normal is actually part of the problem? Have we ever considered that normal is actually the the issue? We talk about getting back to normal. Well, let's, again, just take an honest evaluation here. Before the pandemic across our culture, normal for most Christians, for most churches, looks like completely hit and miss church attendance. Normal looks like 10% of, less than 10% of professing Christians nationwide actively sharing their faith. Normal in most church contexts looks like 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. Normal for most followers of Christ in our culture looks like excessive materialism and a love affair with comfort and convenience and entertainment. And I just have to ask ourselves, is this really what we want to get back to? Is that really, once again, what we're longing for, church? Our goal should not be getting back to normal in the culture. Our goal in the 21st century should be getting back to what was normal in Scripture. What was normal in the Scripture were people who, day in and day out, were witnesses to the supernatural deeds of God in their midst. Normal was the church that gathered with increasing frequency as they saw the day of the Lord drawing near. Normal was every single follower of Christ being a witness to his resurrection, and the message of the gospel. Normal was every follower of Jesus seeing their belongings as not belonging to them, but ultimately belonging to the Lord to be stewarded for his glory and sacrificing everything that they could materially, financially, for the advance and the buildup of the kingdom. Normal was not praying for things to get back to normal. Normal was to pray for boldness even in the face of trouble. This is the example we see in Acts chapter 2. It's a powerful picture here at the end of Acts chapter 2. It says, When they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council. What does that next word say? Rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's what it looks like to have invincible joy. It's when it's not comfortable. It's when it's not easy. It's when it's not normal. And we can know this invincible joy because we proclaim an invincible message. It's a message that continues to advance. It's a message that continues to go forward regardless of the challenges that we face. Verse 15, Paul goes on to write, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So the gospel cannot be hindered by difficult problems. And second, the gospel cannot be hindered by difficult people. There's absolutely nothing and there's no one that can hinder the advance of the power of the gospel. Now, uh, we don't know the exact identity of those whom Paul is referring to, but the context makes it clear that there was a wave of opportunists who saw Paul's imprisonment as their chance to build up their own personal ministry platform for their own personal gain. So uh, in contrast to those who had been emboldened uh, to preach the gospel without fear, there was another group on the opposite end of the spectrum that was emboldened to preach the gospel for their fame. It was not for, uh, because they loved God, it wasn't because they loved their neighbor, it wasn't because they loved the church, it wasn't because they loved the word. Their primary motivation was that they loved themselves. They wanted their names to be exalted. They wanted their platforms to be built. And more than that, they're really kind of trying to twist the knife on Paul, trying to, as he said, afflict him in his imprisonment. They want Paul to be growing jealous of the fact that their ministries are growing and exploding while he's stuck over here and locked away in prison. And church, here is how you and I can know that we have gone completely off base in our mission. It's when we see other faithful ministers and messengers of the gospel, and we don't see them as companions in the ministry, but we see them as competition to ministry. That's where we've gone off the rails. And so Paul is is acknowledging here, yes, there are some who are preaching, not necessarily a false message, but they're preaching from a false motive. Their motives are not pure. It's ultimately about their name and about their glory, and yet Paul still has the, the, the humility to speak into this and say, listen, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. But in this passage, there's a really important nuance that we need to pay attention to, because if you take this verse just out of context, you isolate it by itself, it could come across as Paul saying, listen, we just need to lay all differences aside and lock arms with anybody who claims the name of Jesus, and we need to work together for unity. So there's a a very important nuance we need to pay attention here because Paul here is not addressing those who preach a false message. He's addressing those who preach from a false motive. All right, so so Paul's words elsewhere and and throughout the New Testament, we're going to look at one place here in just a moment, are abundantly clear. Those who preach an explicitly false message were to have no association with these whatsoever. Again, it's, it's not terribly uh, politically correct in uh, the 21st century, but, but God's word is abundantly clear to us throughout the New Testament that we are in no way, shape, or form to associate with those who would preach a false gospel. So this is from 2 John 1.10. John writes, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So we need that foundation, that false teachers are not true Christians. And he goes on to say that whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. To greet and to lock arms with those who are preaching a false gospel actually makes us complicit in the perpetuation of that false gospel. So so John says you need to avoid this. We do absolutely nothing to even give the appearance. And listen, I know that unity is the Christian buzzword of 2021, but listen, it is not enough for us to be united in appearance. We have to be united in substance. And we have to be united in the substance of the truth of God's word. So, so this is what's a little bit tricky here because message can be a little bit more easily distinguished than motive. 
We can hear things that people uh, say and things that they teach, or we can sit down and talk with them and, and learn about their doctrinal and theological and biblical positions. But, uh, and so it's a little bit easier sometimes to discern uh, false message from false motive. Again, we uh, touched on this several times over the last few weeks. But there are a number of doctrinal and theological positions that uh, we, I don't just think as a church, I believe we as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be clinging to these things with a closed hand. Because the moment we depart from any one of these things, we are no longer holding on to biblically faithful Christianity. So uh, examples of this would include the doctrine of Scripture. So we believe God's Word to be inerrant and inspired and infallible, and it is the ultimate authority over all matters of faith, life, and practice. We would look at the doctrine of the Trinity, one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look at the virgin birth of Christ. We hold this with a closed fist. We look at the sinfulness of man. The truth that we are not born naturally good, we are born naturally dead. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do to remedy this condition on our own. We need a Savior. We hold on to that with a closed fist. The substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. Jesus died in our place, absorbing God's wrath against sin as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. We hold that with a closed fist. The exclusivity of the gospel, that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Closed fist. We uh, look at a literal, physical, resurre- historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. We hold that with a closed fist. That's not just a metaphor. That's That's something that really happened. We look at a literal, physical, historical second coming of Jesus Christ in the future. We hold that with a closed fist. Again, it's debated heavily in the culture, but it's plainly clear in Scripture that uh, marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. That life begins at the moment of conception because every single person is made in the image of God. And all of life from womb to tomb is worthy worthy of dignity and protection because we've been made in God's image. And so this list could go on, but the moment we start to depart from things like this, we break fellowship with those who would do that because we're no longer then holding on to biblically faithful Christianity. That there's lots of secondary issues where we might be able to agree to disagree, but these are not matters of agree to disagree. And so ultimately, uh, we separate from those who would teach these things. We pray for their repentance and return to the truth. So a false message can be explicitly clear. You can hear what somebody uh, speaks into, doesn't speak into, sit down and have a conversation with them to discern what it is they do and don't believe. But a false motive can be a little bit more difficult to discern. This is what the prophet Jeremiah says about the heart in Jeremiah 17. He says, the heart is deceitful. It's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. This is your annual reminder that follow your heart is like the worst advice you could ever get. It's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But then this is the follow-up. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Here's the reality. Ultimately, only the Lord can truly and fully know the, hearts and the heart and motive of man. So we still recognize there's going to be some who may even proclaim a true message, but they're doing it from a false motive. So how could we discern this? How might we know this? Because, again, while the Lord ultimately is the only one who knows the heart, Jesus does, in fact, teach us that we can know a tree by its fruit. And motive in our culture today very often can be evaluated not by what a teacher does say, but by what a teacher doesn't say. Not just what they're addressing, but by the things that they refuse to address. So a simple way you can determine uh, whether or not someone is preaching for the glory of man rather than the glory of God is that they're paying, all atten- they're, they're paying no attention uh, to topics that are uncomfortable. So there's things that they will avoid uh, because it's easier to build up the platform with a little bit more of a palatable gospel. And so some preaching for the glory of man might continually and constantly preach on the love of God but never mention the wrath of God. They might continually preach a message of redemption but very seldom a message of repentance. They might uh, consistently 
consistently preach on God's kindness and his grace and uh, his mercy, but never speak into his holiness or his justice or his judgment. And, and there are times where the motivation of these false teachers is explicitly clear. So again, you, you see the, the televangelists on TV, hey, if you will sow this seed, if you will contribute this percentage of income, the Lord will multiply it tenfold in your life. If you'll give this, within six months, you'll receive a tenfold blessing. Sometimes it's really explicit. It's, it's stuff like, hey, the Lord's called us to overseas missions. The only way we can do this is by having this $64 million private jet. And, and, and listen, this is what's crazy is because there, there's just enough Bible in this to make it sound a little bit palatable because they'll follow it up by saying, listen, if we're doing it for the Lord, we need to give our best. If we're doing it for the Lord, we need to have the best and to give him anything less than our best is sin. There's just enough Bible in that to make it sound at least a little bit plausible. And so we still, as a culture, in many ways, we run to this nonsense in droves. So we have to understand, sometimes that the motive isn't as clear, but church, sometimes the motive is really clear. And we don't just look at this and say, hey, let's just, well, that's okay, agree to disagree. No, like we need to run. We need to do our best to rescue those who are stuck in the, in the clutches of those with these clearly false motives. But here's what's amazing. If you look through the history of the church for the last 2,000 years, what you see time and time and time again is how the gospel continues to survive regardless of the motives of those who are preaching it. Really powerful story um, from within our own church family. And I asked his permission to share this this morning. He's not here today, um, but I'm, I'm going to share this with you. It's, uh, many of you know Dave Eatman. Dave uh, serves on our staff as a pastoral assistant. He's the regional director for crew military, and uh, he's also pursuing uh, chaplaincy through uh, the Navy right now. And um, so this is how Dave came to faith in Christ. Dave was at home one day, and he turns on the TV, and the person on the TV is Kenneth Copeland. Who knows who Kenneth Copeland is? Raise your hand. Okay. If you're, uh, to the uninitiated, um, just quite frankly, one of the uh, most infamous charlatans of the 20th and 21st century, bar none. I mean, by, by almost every objective measure has just uh, misled uh, countless multitudes of people away uh, from a faithful uh, proclamation of the gospel. And so uh, this particular day, Dave's sitting at home and Copeland goes through his whole health, wealth, prosperity spiel. But then he gets to the end of this message and, and there was just enough gospel here, just enough discussion about how Dave understood that he was sinful and how he needed to repent of his sins and how he could be saved from his sins through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was sitting there in his living room through the preaching of Kenneth Copeland that Dave Eatman came to faith in Christ. And church, it's just our reminder once again that the power of the gospel is not in the messenger. The power of the gospel is the message. The good news can survive even the worst of motives. I think we can all pretty quickly agree that Kenneth Copeland's motives in preaching the gospel are not all that healthy. I think we'd also agree that most of what he preaches isn't actually the gospel. Would probably fall more into the category of a false teacher that the New Testament would cause us to, or compel us to to depart from. But, But it was even through that broken delivery of the gospel, they've heard just enough to profess faith in Jesus Christ. The power is not the messenger, the power is the message. And the gospel can survive regardless of the circumstances. So if we're going to experience, if we're going to know this invincible joy in Jesus, that's only going to happen through full confidence in the message of the gospel. That has to be our foundation. 
That has to be our foundation. That is where we have to anchor our heart and our soul and our minds and our lives is in the victory of Jesus Christ. And so we have to live within that, and that is the only way that we're going to be able to experience this joy in spite of the circumstances. So ask the question this morning, how can I know joy regardless of the circumstances? A few quick points of application as we close today. First, very simply, check your mindset. Check your mindset. I want to ask you the question this morning. Do you see your current circumstances? Do you see your current job, your current home, your current neighborhood, students, your current school? Do you see your current circumstances as an obstacle to the gospel, or do you see them as an opportunity for the gospel? Could it be that the Lord has surrounded you with so many difficult people? We're never the difficult people ourselves, right? It's always them. Let's just assume that's true even though we know it's not. Let's, let's, let's just pretend that maybe the Lord has surrounded us with these difficult people so that his name might be proclaimed. So that they might not go unreached because we have been present in their lives and we have witnessed to them the message of the gospel. Every single field is a mission field. Whether it's uh, the football game with your kids this week, whether students, it's you being in school, whether it's your workplace, everywhere the Lord places us, that is our mission field. And it doesn't have to be an obstacle to the gospel. It can be an opportunity for the gospel. And, and I think we need to go ahead and adopt the mindset that there's never going to be a point in time in our lives where we're not going to experience some form of trial and tribulation. See, I, I do this sometimes. I think many of us probably do this. Is, is what we do is we start to play this game where we convince ourselves, hey, when I just get through this season of busyness, then I will a little more faithfully engage the mission of the church. Just got to get through this, just got to get through that, then I'm going to pray more, then I'm going to read more, then I'm going to serve more. And so we just convince ourselves that there is, there is coming this season of unbusiness that's not coming. It's just not. And it's just the fact of our lives that it's, it's chaotic. And so instead of seeing everything as an obstacle to the gospel, we see it as an opportunity for the gospel. The Lord convicted my heart of this uh, a couple weeks ago. We've got to drive our boys. We live way out on Ladies Island. We've got to drive our boys way out to Burton Wells for football like four days a week right now. It's like a 30-minute drive from our house. And, and, man, I just want to begrudge it and complain about it. And the Lord just really convicted my heart and said, hey, maybe I've given you these 30 minutes so that you can engage your two little boys with the message of the gospel. And so that's what we've tried to do the last couple of weeks as we're having that drive to and from. It's an hour that we get to have in the car. How can I redeem uh, sort of that empty, mundane, frustrating experience for the advance of the gospel? It doesn't have to be an obstacle. It can be an opportunity. So we keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We want to give our earthly problems a heavenly perspective as we look forward to the eternity to come with a healthy gospel-centered mindset. Second is we need to check our message. You're going to know joy in the midst of, in, in the midst of uh, challenging circumstances. Make sure you check your message. Because this is one area where the American church is really lacking. It's in having a really healthy theology of suffering. We tend to see suffering as I've done something wrong in the eyes of God. When biblically, oftentimes, the first century church, they suffered because they were doing everything right. It's because they were being faithful. It's because they were doing what Jesus told them to do that they faced opposition at every single turn. And we, we need to, I think, have a healthier mentality that, hey, not every difficulty is an attack from Satan. I mean, maybe it is, and, and maybe, though, it's because we're actually advancing the gospel, not because we've, we've done something wrong here. Uh, this was uh, in his 1937 book, The Kingdom of God in America. Richard uh, Niebuhr said uh, of the theological liberalism that was on the rise in his day, this was over 80 years ago, but I think was very prophetic for the 21st century to come. The message of his day, he said, went a little bit like this, that a God without wrath 
brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. What we're guilty of sometimes is we ignore some of the more difficult aspects of who God is and what he's done because we ourselves want to be comfortable and we want to make the gospel maybe a little bit more palatable to people who struggle to to comprehend who God is and what he's done for us. And so we'll abandon some of those more difficult truths about the reality of our sin and the necessity for repentance and the reality of God's coming judgment and wrath. And so we'll, we'll hold back on all these things. But here's the thing, church. You won't know true joy in your salvation unless you truly know what it is you've been saved from. Do we recognize that we were born dead in our sin, that we were on a one-way fixed path to eternal destruction under the wrath of God because of our rebellion against him in sin? And because he is good and because he's gracious and because he's kind, not because of anything good within us, he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect replacement to be the perfect sacrifice, to be the substitute who stood in our place and absorbed the fullness of God's wrath so that we could walk in freedom and we could have eternal life. Do you understand what you've been saved from? Because there is no way to not have joy when we look at the reality of the destruction we deserved and then the salvation that we've been given in Jesus Christ. There's no way to see this and not fall before God on our knees and worship and thank him. Do you know what you've been saved from? So we check our message Could it be that we're not experiencing joy because we're not leaning into even some of the more uncomfortable aspects of the truth of the gospel? And last, very simply, check your motive. Check your mindset, check your message, and ultimately check your motive. Is it possible that we don't know true joy in Christ because if we're being honest and looking at our hearts, all of our serving has been in the name of Jesus, but deep down inside it's really been about us. It's been about people uh, seeing us and celebrating us and knowing us, drawing attention to ourselves. Is it possible that we feel oftentimes very exhausted in all of our church attending and all of our praying and all of our giving and all of our serving because the motive we're we're, we're really uh, operating from is one that's about us getting glory and not about God getting glory? And so this is something, you know, we as a church family, uh, since long before we we started having services almost four years ago, I mean, we as a launch team were praying these things at the uh, end of 2015 all through 2016. We've been praying for, for going on five years now for the Lord to bring supernatural spiritual revival and awakening to the low country. And so let, let's just lay out a hypothetical scenario here. Let, let's say the Lord over the next couple of years, he, he just unleashes a wave of revival on Buford, unlike anything anyone's ever seen. All across Buford County, tens of thousands of people are repenting of their sin, and they're putting their faith in Jesus Christ, and they're surrendering their lives to him. Let's say that all of that is happening. Could you and I still be happy if it was happening through the church down the street? Could we be happy? Could we celebrate? Could we have joy? Would we have the humility to look at that work? And and listen, because this is what we do sometimes, is is when we start to see people as competition and not as companions, this is the game we start to play, especially in a small town. It's like, well, yeah, they're doing some good things, but there's a little more going on there behind the scenes. I know the heart of that pastor. I know the motives of that church. I know the direction they're going, and there's there's some stuff that you're not seeing, and, and so I think we just need to reserve any sort of celebration that we might have in that. Would we operate sort of in that cynical posture, in that jealous posture, because we're just mad that it's them and not us, or could we have the humility like Paul to step back and say, hey, listen, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Are we content with the only reward that we receive in this life to be the ultimate glory and praise of God? 
because that's where all this is going in the future, is that we would be gathered around his throne, every people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, to bring him glory. Are we content if his glory is our only reward? So, Father, we ask this morning that that would be the genuine motive of our hearts is your ultimate glory and praise, Father, that you would absolve us of any need to be seen and to be celebrated by others, that we could live in the contentment of knowing that we are seen by you, that you are our Father and we are your children, and that on account of Christ, you are well pleased. Could we rest in that today? So, Father, help us to once again today root our confidence in the power of the gospel. Lord, to keep a healthy mindset, to preach a true message and to operate out of a pure motive. That we would bring you glory and praise in all that we do.